Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, and that's me. And this is the last episode of Recode Media. It's the last one. That's it. Now, like I said last week, the show isn't really ending. It's got to head to a new home with a new name early next year. And if you want to hear it, then all you got to do is nothing. Just make sure you're subscribed to this feed on Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, and we will come to you. But like I also said last week, I've been making this show at Vox Media since February 2016. That's almost eight full years. That's hundreds of episodes, hundreds of guests. And it also means I've worked with lots of awesome people over the years. I wish I could thank every one of them by name. I can't do that, but I do want to shout out the people who are making this show with me right now. That's Jolie Myers, Travis Larchuk, and Jelani Carter, who has been putting up with me for the longest time. Thank you, Jelani. If you're lucky, you get to work with great people, and I have been lucky for a long time. And while I'm thanking people, I want to thank you, the people who listen to this podcast and tell other people to listen to this podcast. And you tell me when I'm doing well, you also tell me when I can do better. Like I always say, I love making this show, and I love hearing from you. Let's keep it going next year. And now, what's probably going to be the last chat I ever record out of the Vox Media Studios, here's me talking to Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. He's going to help us make sense of the year we're wrapping up and give us some ideas about where things are going next. Lucas Shaw, you're in Seoul. I'm in New York. It's afternoon my time, so it's, I don't know what, Friday morning for you? You seem It seems like it's early for you. Uh, it is It is 7 a.m., and I guess because of how far north we are, uh, it is still dark outside. God bless you. Thank you for coming on Recode Media, the last Recode Media of all time. Um, we can get nostalgic later, but I, well, this whole this was, will be a, a nostalgic episode. I want to talk to you about the year the year in media, which is not yet done, but it's done for me. Um, a lot happened. We've had you on a couple times to talk about it, and I kind of want to talk about what we've learned from the year. So let's let's just start off with the big thing: the strike. We spent five months. We spent more than five months talking about the strike because we spent a lot of time in advance talking about the strike. The strike's still technically not over. I think it might be by the time this podcast comes out. Um, but it looks like the SAGs, the actor strike will be over. What what do we learn from the strike? And we is a big collective question, right? Is it it can be us as consumers, us as an industry, it could be the studios, it could be the talent. Is there one central takeaway for you? Um, I don't know that this counts as a as a learning, but as much as, you know, before, during, and after, it just felt like, you know, we've all as a society experienced streaming change the way sort of pop culture works or the or even more broadly internet change the way sort of entertainment works and it was similarly and perhaps even more disruptive for the way the business worked and much as for us at first everyone thought it was great and then more time went by we realized there were maybe some flaws in streaming and even some of us came to sort of miss 
the the ease of of cable if not the the way it was structured a lot of the creative people who thought streaming at first was this salvation from the the strictures of broadcast tv got to realize that there were some flaws in the system and the companies didn't want to change it and so they had to go on strike to change it for them um and you know time will tell if it was as uh as dramatic and revolutionary as as some of the members of, of the guild uh, say it is, um, but it's all part of this sort of broader reset that's been happening, uh, you know, in Hollywood and honestly in tech and media beyond, you know, where the, the, the layoffs and the restructuring just never seem to stop. Yes, he said pointedly. Um, is, are there significant changes in the deals themselves? If we compared this to the last working deal, there's language now about AI that obviously didn't exist in the last deal. There's some discussion about how streaming revenues will be will be allocated. It seems to me like these are pretty small tweaks around the edges. I mean, look, they got really substantial raises. You know, we're not talking about the the auto workers, twenty five percent or whatever mm-hmm. that number ended up being, but 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 very substantial raises. Um, they and that's, that's what you expect out of a contract, right? Yeah. We'd like to get paid more. You don't want to pay as much. We'll settle somewhere in the middle. They have adjusted the way that residuals get paid for streaming, and that's essentially kind of getting paid for reruns. And it used to be that you got paid for reruns because networks would literally re-air something. Streaming is obviously a little bit different because something is always available for viewing. And so there's, there's a residuals formula. They got paid more for streaming residuals outside of the U.S., the, I mean, these are those all amount to we got paid more, but they all matter and they all had to fight for them. Mm-hmm. And then they got a, cu- a few new things that I'm talking more about the writers than the actors here, but that the, to the writers were were very important. You know, they got minimum staffing, meaning a, cer- a minimum number of people had to be employed on a show. They got both the writers and actors are getting kind of bonuses for streaming shows that are particularly successful. Mm-hmm. And as you note, they got some protections against AI. Those are real. It's really hard for us to know how significant they right. are. So because- they, they modernized their contracts a little bit yeah. to reflect a new reality. Um, one in which there really isn't syndication and which, which, which where you're sort of, you know, the, the handful of streamers sort of are going to be the way that most people see a lot of shows, et cetera. There was a New York Times profile of David Zaslav, the head of Warner Brothers Discovery, last month. It's very good. Um, if you listen to this show, you've probably heard a lot of this stuff before, but it was really well done, I thought, and there was great anecdotes. And near the end, there's kind of, I thought, an incendiary – I don't think it was supposed to be an incendiary quote from David Zaslav talking about the strikes and the strikers. He said, they were right about almost everything. And the way I read that and a lot of other folks did said, well, if we were right about everything, why did we spend five months out of work at a real cost to both us and the companies? How much of the strike is the studio's fault for not coming to their senses earlier? Hard to say. I mean, I think – some of it certainly, but I do well. One, I I would love to get David Zaslav to explain that quote because he's someone who just sort of says things. Sometimes he talks yes. a lot, so mm-hmm. I don't fully know what he meant by it. But I also do think that looking back on it, and we may have talked about this, the studios really did think that it wasn't that had hoped to get both the directors and actors on board, and so then they could have sort of forced the writers a little bit more. So they didn't really engage with the writers in a in a big way until July, which is when the actors went on strike. Now, after that, could they have done a deal quickly? 
maybe, yeah. You know, it ended up taking them a little more than, or about two months, or three months to have it really, I should say three months to have it, you know, really all all written, all, all said and done. I, you know, I, 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 I think everyone involves thinks that it could have been faster and just points fingers at the other side. Yeah, so. sure. The line from the studios for most of it was, hey, the, the writers and the actors have to understand we're in a new reality. You know, uh, uh, Bob Iger had a quote along those lines. You go, the stuff you guys are asking for isn't realistic. We simply can't afford what you're asking for. This is, again, what you expect to hear in a negotiation. Is there any truth of that, though, that the, the concessions the studios made are going to show up in some way on screen, that there'll be less product, uh, the product will be more expensive, and so they won't be able to make as much stuff, that, that somehow a viewer will see the impact of, of this deal? Maybe in output, but I think that that's what was going to happen anyways. These companies were cutting back. I mean, look, the studios had actually a very good excuse or argument, depending on your perspective, that their stocks were getting crushed. They were being told by Wall Street to spend, still are being told by Wall Street to spend less money, generate more profit, you know, fix the streaming business. And increasing costs by a bunch of, by paying writers more and then paying actors more was going to make it more challenging for them. It was also going to set precedent for them to pay other guilds even more money. And there were certain things that the guilds asked for, like the actors asking for a, a percentage share of all streaming revenue that I think the studios were right to balk at. But on the whole, they could afford it, right? Like they could find ways to spend less money and other things. And even though they, the studios hated this, you know, or David Zaslav is an example. Let's look at how much money he gets paid for mm -hmm. 2023. And could he have given up half of that money to help fund these deals? And you can go across how much money is Bob Iger at Disney going to get paid? How much money are, is Ted Sarandos at Netflix going to get paid? And so on and so on. I, I don't know how much it's going to impact the the output uh, or or what you see. I mean these these companies aren't going to go from they're not going to be spending dramatically less to make these shows. Shows are only getting more expensive. Same with movies, and they're still going to need a lot of it. They're just going to be a little more judicious about what they choose to make, and they're sort of already doing it. How do the studios figure out how to make streaming work? Netflix seems to have finally done it after years and years and years. And they had a very well-publicized wobble. We talked about it several times. Um, it seems they are now stronger than ever. I don't think you can say that about anybody else who was trying to chase them for several years and has now sort of put the brakes on. And they are cutting costs and in a way to, they want to make streaming profitable. What will it take for, for everyone who's not Netflix to make streaming work? Some combination of spending smarter um, charging more and maybe merging. You know, Disney seems to be leaning into the spending smarter and charging more. They're in the best position still of any of these other players, you know, across, just in terms of the number of subscribers as well as uh, sort of their, just their hand, I would say. Disney Plus was very, very cheap. I don't know, I don't know how you, I don't know, they made a bunch of weird shows. I still think that you know, Disney Plus probably doesn't have enough on its own, but because they are sort of imminently combining Disney Plus and Hulu, they can probably come up with a decent budget and a decent programming slate that will keep people hooked and is slightly more economical. It's it's everyone else um, that's in a little trickier spot. I mean, look, Apple and Amazon, obviously, as, as larger corporations, can stomach what they're spending. Um, and Apple, in particular, doesn't spend that much because they don't have a library. 
Right. Um, but the Warner Brothers Discoveries and Paramounts and Peacocks of the world um, all still have a lot of, of figuring out to do. And this consolidation, consolidation, consolidation talk, we've had it for years. Uh, you had uh, John Malone uh, a month ago saying, we should, everyone should consolidate as soon as possible. He's the main shareholder behind Warner Brothers Discovery. He's got a vested interest. Those deals have yet to manifest. And every time I have you on or someone else who covers media, we ask about when that's going to happen. Um, we've pointed to 2024 as a year that could happen. Any more reason to believe it will act, that someone's going to buy someone meaningful this coming year? I mean, only in 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 that you bring up John Malone and Warner Brothers Discovery and their limitation on doing another deal sort of expires because of this um, kind of tax stuff that we don't need to get into. And we don't want to say reverse Morris Trust in the last <laughs> podcast. Um, I said it. Yeah. And, and just the, the pro, some of these companies, their situation gets more and more perilous. I mean, you look at a Paramount and they're worth, I, I haven't checked, their, their stocks popped a little bit recently, but it's still worth like nine or $10 billion. And this is a company that when CBS and Viacom combined, though they were both worth more than $10 billion independently. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point, you know, Sherry Redstone, who's, whose family controls that company, uh, are, is going to have to capitulate. Some, yeah. You know, but otherwise, no, we could be sitting around and waiting. They may just get tired. We could have the same discussion in a year. Absolutely. Why haven't they combined? And then the other version of combination that we hear a lot about is, oh, we've got to rebundle. The bundle needs to come back. Sometimes you hear consumers say, boy, I wish I could have all the stuff for $100 just like I used to, which I think is delusional. And they don't also remember how bad the cable bundle used to be. But I also think the people who say, oh, if we bundle together, I understand that bundling multiple services reduces churn. So that's good in theory for the studios. And you'll see like, so Verizon is now doing something where you can get Max and Netflix together. Is that the bundle people are imagining? Or are they imagining one mega bundle owned by one company? That doesn't sound very good at all or plausible. I am, uh, and I, I detect from the way you framed it, similar to you, sort of skeptical of this return of the bundle concept. It does reduce cancellations if done right, but nobody seems to be rushing to package all of their services together. And there is no bundle that functions without Netflix as the centerpiece. It's the biggest and most Mm -hmm. popular service. And Netflix, that bundle you referenced is for its ad tier. It's really trying to grow its ad tier as a funnel for the main thing. And so maybe it, it, it pursues more deals there. But I don't get the sense that Netflix, in the, at least not in the U.S., feels like it needs a big bundle to reduce its churn, which for now remains way, way, way better than everyone else's. And none of these other competitors, other than Disney and, and Amazon and Apple, have big businesses outside the U.S., which is where Net, there are certain... And I don't think like bundling Disney with Amazon in the Philippines is going to ha- make a huge difference. So I guess I don't think there's going to be some huge rebundling. I do think that you'll see experiments to try to essentially just bring in more customers or reduce churn for some of these services. And we've seen honestly seen versions of this forever. There used to be a Showtime Hulu package you could get. Mm-hmm. Or this is Disney has its own bundle, which it's now sort of slowly turning into just one Disney service, but it's having to do so very carefully so it doesn't end up trying to charge everyone $25. 
And what about the consumer complaint that, oh, I can't figure out what stuff's streaming where and what, what I own and what's – I mean, there's a real pain point there. It would be nice to go to one screen that showed you everything and you could, first of all, at least figure out if you have it or not. Um, even now, like you could, services like Just Watch don't really suffice. You do have to sort of hunt and pack. I'm fine with that. But I understand that it's a real concern from folks. Is there is there any relief coming for that? Not until these companies decide that they want to give some big – third party, the the power to sort of make a TV guide, right? Right. You know, Apple tried to do this in TV. And Netflix said, no, thank you. Google and, and Amazon have sort of tried to do versions of this. And yeah, the big streaming companies just say, we don't want to give over our data. We don't want to give you control of the customer experience. And this is another area where basically until Netflix is willing to play ball, um, it's very hard to do. What about the rest of TV? Uh, Bob Iger this summer in that same um, interview where he said the actors and writers have to become realistic said essentially all my TV networks are for sale or most of my TV networks are for sale. And at the DealBook conference last week um, before Elon Musk came on stage, he said, oh, that was that was fake news. I didn't say that is kind of what he said. Then he said, well, actually what I was doing is putting up a trial balloon. I wanted to see what Wall Street thought of that. But it turns out we're going to hang on to all that stuff. One, why do you think he decided to not sell the stuff? Is it because there isn't a price that he can get for it that, that is worthwhile? And two, how does Bob Iger get away with saying something out loud on live TV and then saying, no, I kind of didn't say that? Uh, I'll take the second one first because I've been – it drove me insane I wasn't in the room because I've been abroad, so I didn't see how Andrew Ross Sorkin handled it. Andrew Ross Sorkin's a total pro, so I'm sure he did fine. But it did strike me as like, okay, you're just blaming the media for something that you said. You said on multiple occasions that you were looking into things and people who worked for you did nothing to disabuse reporters of the idea that you were shopping his aspects. quote is amazing. Sometimes when I'm looking for a reaction to my own thought process, I like to test that process in public, particularly in ways that I might be might be able to get a reaction from the investment community. Yeah. So my thought was the time that I would essentially be public with that thought process. So that's you saying it out loud. That's what that means. I do think that he tried he he was testing the waters. He's mm -hmm. it, he's sitting in this situation where he doesn't know what to do with the company. He's got He's had at various points over the last uh, kind of year plus the activist investor, an activist investor causing him headaches. He's got a stock price that's getting hammered because of the performance of the business. And so he wanted to see what was out there. I, I buy that. I'm not sure the way he handled it with with any of his, his public statements was effective, but it certainly invited a lot of conversations. And if you talk to the people, there's there's one school of thought that Bob Iger has basically lost his touch and that the Bob Iger of old would never look so uncertain or so defensive. And there's another school of thought, which is that he's just in a different situation and he's got to tr do things differently. And it may look weird to people who followed this guy for a long time, but, you know, so be it. You know, I, I was always a little skeptical that he would end up selling these networks, partially for emotional reasons, because he, he came up at ABC. He's, he's talked about how he's essentially worked at ABC for 50 years. Um, and then partially because if he wanted to sell the linear networks, which is the, the weird jargony term for, for TV, live TV networks, he 
would need to he would probably need to be comfortable also selling ESPN, which is their their sports network. And because ESPN really relies on ABC now, the big leagues like to have live sporting events on broadcast TV because broadcast TV can still deliver a bigger audience than cable. And so packaging ABC and ESPN is powerful and makes it easier for them to keep top NBA rights or top college football rights and top NFL rights. And if you're just going to sell ABC, then it really hurts ESPN. He's made clear he wants, he sees sports as foundational for the business mm-hmm. and a differentiator, which I think is a smart move because it's one thing that they have that Netflix, for example, doesn't have. Yep. Um, and no one has ESPN. Yeah. No and one has anything so close to Otherwise, ESPN. you're talking about what? You're going to sell like Freeform and FX and how much difference is that really going to make? I don't know how much you'd really get for them at this point. I was going to ask about movies, but I want to segue to sports because we do have some big sports packages um, hitting the market, and they're sort of already on the market. The big one is the NBA. We've talked about this before. The NBA essentially wants to double what they're getting from American broadcasters to bit to get about seven, eight billion dollars a year is the price they're asking for, and. Every year we have the same story, which is, hey, people are watching less TV. Maybe they're even watching less sports, but the rights for these keeps getting more and more expensive. And there's been this debate about whether or not the conventional networks can continue to pay that. Maybe the tech guys will come in. Maybe someone will boost that up. Uh, I thought it was very interesting, though. There was a, a deal announced yesterday for English Premier League. It's the the big. It's the most. It's the it's the most popular soccer in four um, percent world. In the UK, and it's 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 supposedly the rates went up four percent, but if you look at it, it's kind of flat. And there's even a note out saying actually it looks like their rates went down slightly. So there's it seems to have hit a peak. If you it's it's the equivalent of not of the NFL not getting really any bump for a deal in the US, and notably Amazon, which had a few of those games, said actually we're out of the market as well. Hard to tell if what that means about things like the NBA in the US, but do you expect the NBA to get the money they're looking for next year? Uh, not $8 billion, no. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you expect the only- a tech player to come in and pick up some of that stuff? Yes. Um, and that would be the argument for why the NBA rate could hit what they want. I mean, what the sports leagues have resorted to to try to keep getting these big increases is the slice and dice yes. strategy. Yes, the NFL is the best at it. Yeah, the NFL now has... Thursday night and three windows Sunday and Monday night and they're all with slightly different companies so you've got Disney and Comcast and Fox and Paramount aka CBS and Amazon and you know if they wanted to add you know a London package and sell it to Netflix or something they probably could the NBA is currently with ESPN and TNT which is Warner Brothers Discovery and Disney both of those companies want to keep their packages, even though, speaking of saying things publicly that you don't really mean, David Zaslav keeps insisting that they don't need the NBA. Um, they need the NBA. But they can't pay the increases for, that the NBA wants. So the expectation for a long time now has been that one or both of those people will lose some games which the NBA will carve into a separate package for a third party. And that could be Amazon, it could be NBC Universal, it could be Apple. Um, you know, the the and and then there is a little bit of a wild card now, I think, with this in-season tournament that has picked up a lot of momentum 
Um, and if you're and, not following the NBA, they basically added a whole new slew of games for a tournament that kind of doesn't mean anything, but it kind of does. And it the, turns the out the players popular. have decided that they care about winning it. It, it they 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 all count as regular season games except for the final, which is this weekend. Um, apologies if I got the timing wrong on when the episode's coming. I, I, I had no but, idea when the tournament um, concluded. And so I, they, you know, they've they've tried to get media interested. Like there is some stuff about there's a, a story about Netflix being interested in the rights. I was told that wasn't true, but you know things change. The best argument for the NBA getting the money that it wanted or wants is Amazon and Apple being interested amazon because it likes the idea of having nights where people have to come in and use the service so if you can Mm -hmm. say like monday night or tuesday night is nba night that's very useful for them apple because eddie q who runs their media division is like a massive nba fan you can see him on the golden state warriors bench basically (laughs) most most games Um, and i guess it makes sense i mean it doesn't really fit in with their strategy of trying to really control a sport like they do with soccer but you know anything is possible. Yeah, and I've heard I've heard the the guys who own the rights now say, well, what what we think will happen is we'll keep our games, and the league will slice off kind of a, a bunch of garbage and sell that to Amazon because that they'll they'll be in the market for it. So they'll get you know late December game, games no one cares about essentially. Um, I can't imagine Amazon or Apple says we're happy to pick up the garbage. So I assume something has to give. Yeah, they're. I mean, it'll be interesting. The the Amazon was willing to accept on the Thursday night football package. Like year one of that deal, they got a bunch of crappy games and the ratings were poor. But by year two, the games got better and, and the ratings have been very strong. I imagine if they were to make a run at it, that it would be similar in structure. We'll be right back with Lucas Shaw. But first, a word from a sponsor. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. And we're back. Let's finish up by talking about movies. Um, there is a, a ongoing sort of fight, I guess, in movie world where uh, where people want to say movies are back. Is and it then a if fight? You say, well, I don't know. I, I guess two sides have to be engaged in it. But there's an ongoing discussion, let's say that, about whether the movies have bounced back, whether movie going has bounced back from the pandemic. Every time a movie does well or kind of well or surprisingly well, you know, people say, ah, oh, it's back. Are movies back? No. Um, Why not? We had Barbenheimer. I, I get, it was I a get huge shit thing. on for this all the time because people think I'm too negative about about movies. That's why but I love you, Lucas. It seems fairly obvious that look, movie going. There was a there's a mistaken perception that movie going was really really healthy before the pandemic. It had been and declining was, since the internet, basically. Yeah, it was healthier. Well. Look, moviegoing has been in decline for like six decades. I don't remember. I'd have to look at it. But like the peak of moviegoing as a cultural experience is something that people just went and did every weekend was in like the 40s or 50s or 60s. Right. And, then if you, and I published these stats before. Yeah. Uh, basically, the per number of movies per person has been shrinking at least since sort of there was yeah. a web browser. And the, the 2010s had a, had a, was, was a good period 
for the movie business relatively for a couple of reasons. One is the prices started to go up in terms of the average ticket price. And also you had the franchises with Marvel and, and comic books and all this that created a recurring story that people showed up for. And these and you just had all these big franchises that, that, that made a lot of money and were relatively reliable. And so wh- where we are now is two things happened. One is the pandemic, which caused studios to experiment more with making movies available at home. And so people who are already maybe inclined to stay home are even more likely to stay home. And you had a little bit of a loss of interest in some of these tried and true franchises. Marvel's not as reliable as it was, even Fast and Furious, Mission Impossible, all these franchises that look a little bit weak. And so the attendance is down. And some of that is because there are not as many releases and you do still have hits. And I think that if you had, you know, full schedules with, you know, a, a full slate with a bunch of interesting movies, you know, the movie business would be doing okay. But we're still 15, 20% off from the pandemic and it's not clear if it's coming back. And I know just from personal experience, like I've started, because people, movie big movie producers ask me this all the time. And I was like, two of my... It, anecdotal evidence is dangerous, but two of my closest and oldest friends who I grew up going to movies with all the time have not been back in the theater since the pandemic. The other debate slash fight slash non-fight is is an argument that says audiences crave new stuff. That's why the three biggest hits of the year were not sequels. They were fresh, fresh IP. Um, But then the next, if you look at what the chart is, they're talking about Barbie a Super Mario Brothers movie, and Oppenheimer. There is no toy line for Oppenheimer. But the other two are toys turned into movies, which is the kind of thing we normally make fun of and used to make fun of. Well, one's um, a video at, game. But. Sorry, you're right. A vid, um, I think video games and toys are basically the same. <laughs> but it's, it's a product. Um, yeah. you know, it, it, is not, like, it is not an original concept. You know, right. They so, took a and, toy and made a movie, and they took a video game that's been around for 30-plus years and made a movie. And by the way, the other seven... The top ten movies are either sequels or a Pixar film or IP we've that we have had. Have we learned anything from this? From what worked, what worked best this year, and what sort of lagged, or is this just the function of particular movies and particular brands? And if you think that Mattel is going to have Barbie-sized success with the remaining, I don't know what else they, what else he's putting out, but he's Enon uh, Kreese is going to keep doing this stuff. Any reason to think that Barbie is is not a one-off? Look, I don't think that every Mattel movie is suddenly going to gross $1.5 billion. Mm-hmm. That seems like a stretch, um, especially because Barbie is just is you know one of their, if not the their most iconic uh, property. I have a hard time discerning like grand new lessons uh, from what were your podcasting, Lucas? This is the whole point. We need to have. I mean, we look, need to yeah, have... people people want like ex- good yeah. movies. They want fresh takes on things that they know. I think we went through, we've gone through these cycles of Marvel and DC, and they're not over. To your point, some like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three did very well. It, you know, people liked that movie. There's or the this new Hunger Games prequel did okay. You know, I I I, I was skeptical that anyone would care about the Hunger Games, but like they made a decent movie, and so people showed up to see it. The I do think we'll see more a lot. We will see a lot more video game adaptations. Because we're seeing, we saw just this year, HBO had The Last of Us, which was 
critically and commercially successful. This movie with Super Mario Brothers, I think, you know, Hollywood has tried to do video game adaptations for a long time. My, my son told me that a month before it came out that he was going to go see Five Nights at Freddy's, which I'd never heard of. Turns out it's a popular video game. And by the way, that movie was streaming the first day that it came out in theaters, and he and 10 of his nerd friends went and saw it, and tens of many other people did as well. It was a big and hit. And that's an example. So that was produced by Jason Blum. He had two movies come out in October. And I think a lot of people thought his new installment in the Exorcist franchise was going to be the big hit because The Exorcist was such a a huge smash when it first came out. Mm -hmm. That movie did terribly because most people didn't think it was very good. The video game adaptation did great. I don't know what we're... I don't know. That doesn't mean all video game adaptations will work. Um, I do think that that's one of the areas... You know, there are these like bankable pools of intellectual property that Hollywood just comes to rely on in certain eras. And it could be that in the 2020s, we're going to be trading comic books for video games and anime and other and other new things. Maybe podcasts. We can have the, the, the Recode Media movie in 2027. If, who's going to play me? I'm going to play me. And it's not going to do well. I ask you every year about, or the last couple of years, about how, how Hollywood is responding to TikTok, um, which to me seems like a kind of existential threat because it's just enormously addictive. People are happy to spend time. And in my Hollywood, I mean anyone putting stuff on a screen that they want people to watch. And I've never gotten, not from you or anybody else, got a real answer about how they're going to deal with this thing that draws an enormous amount of attention. It doesn't seem like it's going to get banned. Do you get a sense that, that anyone in your industry, that the industry you cover daily, is, has gotten their head around what they want to do with TikTok? No, and if anything, they don't talk about it very much. It doesn't get talked about as much as, as YouTube when YouTube was new. I mean, maybe that's just because TikTok is, has already crossed the threshold into being something that everybody uses. But like, you know, there was there were years of hand wringing over YouTube because mm-hmm. that felt like to, to some of them sort of like theft. Um, and and but, YouTube spent its early years trying to convince the studios that it wasn't stealing their stuff and spending a lot of time developing technology. Yeah, for that. I don't know. It seems like people have sort of already moved on to AI. And they're not spending as much. The smart people in the industry recognize that YouTube and TikTok have taken like have taken a significant chunk of their business away from viewers. Right? That you have, people like your son probably spend more time on YouTube and TikTok than they do watching Netflix. By a large, by a large, by a large multiple. Yeah, correct. Now it's unclear if as he gets older, that ratio tilts, right? Mm -hmm. It's totally possible that some of this is, much as when I was a kid, I watched way more of MTV and, uh, I don't know, well, Nickelodeon, MTV, ESPN, then that you're going to grow up into something else. Yes, Um, but 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 I watched a lot of movies as a kid, and a lot of kids these days don't. So anyways, we don't need to talk about the kids these days but i think it's it it remains to be seen what the long-term impact of youtube and tiktok are other than one of the things i think about a lot is traditional film and television while it still matters a lot its sort of share of cultural mind share is shrinking um and that's because of, of youtube and tiktok and there isn't really an answer for it and that's another reason why i think ai 
in the macro sense is scary for them. I think right now it's not as scary as people think it is. You're not, you know, you're not going to suddenly make Disney Marvel movie for $20 million and replace everyone. But you do have these, these different tools that are training a lot of creative output to, and that will be able to spit out things that people can consume at no cost. Cause that's the, that's the competition. If I can watch something that is maybe not as great as an HBO show, but it's free and it's quick and it's served to me efficiently on my phone, a lot of people are going to pick that. Mm-hmm. Lucas, you get the last word from this last episode of the podcast. What's your favorite thing, favorite bit of media you consumed this year? This is not the answer to it, but I was re- I, I was thinking like two minutes ago that you were going to ask me about music because you often do. So I'm just going to tell people to go listen to the Black Pumas because I love their music and they have a new album out. Um, How does it compare to the Andre 3000 uh, uh, flute and instrumental flute album? album? Yeah. Uh, I, I had more fun listening to an interview with Andre 3000 than I had listening to his flute album. <laughs> Was that the one where he said he, he gets into the cab and, and starts playing his flute and the drivers love it? He was talking about playing his. It was an it was an NPR interview with Rodney Carmichael. I uh, I don't. He did talk about how he would just sort of take out his flute and play it anywhere. I don't remember if it was specifically in a cab. That's but. that's the kind of thing you can only do if you're Andre 3000 because everyone else says, "Would you please put that away?" I do not want to hear a flute. All right, um, we have a music recommendation. We have a lot of insight. Lucas Shaw, this is the end of Recode Media. It is not the end of me talking to you. So we will be back on at a. More reasonable hour for you. I see the Do we have a name soul. for what is or is this? No, you got shit? ideas? We'll come back to that. I'll think about it. <laughs> Lucas Shaw, it's been great talking to you. Be well. You too. Thanks again to Lucas Shaw. Thanks again to our advertisers. I forgot to shout out advertisers at the top of the show, but we really do love advertisers. They keep this thing going. They keep us all paid. We love them. Keep advertising, advertisers. This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka, and I'm going to see you next month sometime. See you soon.